as part of the Treasury project, which is being hosted by Vision Media. And uh, then we'll move into our discussion point. So a nice, easy, easy verse to remember for this week, and one that most of us probably know pretty well from 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. And the implication, of course, is that when you do that, he will take all the burden of care from you. And you can live free of fear and anxiety. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. For you. Hallelujah. Well, folks, we are about to launch the last in our rather long series on the rapture. This is number 12. It's not quite number 12, but um, for various reasons, which you'll see if you have a look at the newsletter this week, but that's okay. And um, so this is the last of our sessions on the rapture. And we'll take a little break after that. We've still got a few chapters in Revelation to, to get through before we're finished with the book of Revelation. We will come back to that a little later on. So today what I want to do is to, to finish off by describing the Great Tribulation. We've already looked at this in considerable detail when we were talking about biblical support for a pre-tribulation uh, rapture approach. Also extraordinary phenomena, things happening in the heavens and um, that actually defy most of the laws of uh, physics that we, that we know that, that could only be put down to the supernatural activity of God as he brings extraordinary, um, uh, extraordinary events uh, to the earth. And we'll talk in brief about that because, again, we've been through this in some detail quite a few weeks ago. I also want to speak at the, uh, towards the end of our session today about what I'd call the pre-tribulation rapture deception and the post-tribulation rapture deception, just as a bit of a warning to us to be quite careful about how we respond to our understanding of what is happening in the end times. So let's talk first about this idea of the great tribulation. And you're probably aware yourself that, in fact, you would be aware yourself that Christians have been through tribulation since the very earliest of uh, Christian history. So virtually from the time that Jesus was on earth, there was tribulation. We've just got a bit of a problem with our screens here. If you'll bear with me for a moment or two. Um, just be patient. We've just got... We've fixed up one problem, but we seem to have created another with our screen freezing all the time now. So let's just... That's the way it is with technology sometimes, isn't it? I think we've got it back there now. Yeah. Anyway, praise the Lord. That's all we can do. And he never changes. So it doesn't make any difference. Technology makes no difference to God's love for us, nor for his eternal purposes on the earth. 
So as I was saying, look, Christians have faced tribulation or persecution since the earliest days of the church. In fact, one of the things that Jesus himself spoke about was the kind of tribulation that the average Jewish person suffered when he lived. It was a very tough time to be alive because most people were very poor. And as I said to you before, around about 25% of the population was living at or below starvation level. It was a pretty bad, dangerous and rough time in which to live. Jesus told us, and it's recorded in John 16:33, in this world, you will have tribulation. So it's been the Christian's lot to suffer from tribulation or persecution since the Christian church was established. But there's a particular kind of tribulation, if you like, uh, that occurs just prior to the second coming of Jesus. And uh, the book that I'm relying on most heavily for our discussion at the moment, of course, is the the Systematic Theology, written by Rodman Williams. It's a systematic theology written from what he says is a charismatic viewpoint. Last week, we talked about the abomination of desolation, and uh, many uh, biblical scholars would say that that will actually happen about halfway through the period of tribulation. The period of tribulation is a period of seven years. At that three-and-a-half-year point, Israel will be portrayed and those who signed the covenant with Israel will break that covenant. The worship in the temple will be stopped and then the abomination of desolation will be revealed when idols or an idol is put in place and we're told to worship that idol. At that point, Satan will be doing his very best. It'll be his last and final attempt to wipe Christianity off the face of the planet. Now, Rodman Williams talks about the, the time of tribulation. He calls this the great tribulation. And it's during this time that the judgments that we talked about earlier, the seals, the trumpets and the bowls, those judgments will be meted out. The great tribulation is something which is sent by God upon the forces of evil. In a Matthew 24, Verses 15 to 22, we read this, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Verses 15 of chapter 24 through to 22. This is Jesus. He's speaking to his disciples who asked him how they would know when the end times was coming. Jesus says, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. And then in parentheses, not Jesus speaking, but Matthew, the writer of the gospel speaking, he says, reader, pay attention. Verse 16, Jesus again. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down to the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. And this is what is referred to as the Great Tribulation. 
and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. And Luke 21, 22 says this, and again, it's Jesus speaking. For those will be days of God's vengeance and the prophetic words of the scriptures will be fulfilled. And uh, we actually see in many of the Old Testament prophets and in the words of Jesus, and of course in the book of Revelation, that the, the prophecy is there and we see the final fulfillment in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the elements of the Great Tribulation again because we did that in considerable detail when we were talking about the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. Suffice to say that as we get towards the end of each of those seven judgments, things get more and more severe. And, and at towards the, right at the end of the, the, the bold judgments, there are these fiery stones from heaven which are rained down on the people. And, and despite all of these signs from God, they will not acknowledge him. They continue to curse him. They continue to live lives that are totally opposite or contrary to God's nature and his word. Totally contrary to God's nature and his word. <clears throat> now, what Rodman Williams says is that during the great tribulation, when the wrath of God is poured out, on those who reject him, God's people will be protected. And his primary text is from Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. And uh, this is part of the letter that John wrote to the church at Thyatira. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. So this was written to the church at Thyatira, but Rodman Williams says that not only did it have an application at the time it was written, which was about 90 or 95 AD, it had an application to the church there at that time. It also applies to the church during the period of tribulation. Now you might ask, well, how does God protect his people? Remember that up to half of the people on the planet are actually wiped out by these catastrophic, catastrophic events and, and warring and so on that happens at the end or towards the end of this great tribulation. Well, he says he doesn't know, but in the same way that he doesn't know how Israel was protected when the plagues came upon Egypt. And, and that's, that's a fair comment that uh, we know that there were certain actions that Israel took. Remember, the very first Passover was recorded at that time. And when the death was visited uh, on, the, on the sons of the Egyptians, it wasn't visited on the sons of the Israelites at all. They were protected from the wrath of God that was poured out 
upon the Egyptians. And Rodman Williams says, and I think it's reasonable for him to say this, although we don't know exactly the mechanism by which God will protect his people, nevertheless, he will. Even though we're going to go through a long period of quite severe um, persecution when Christians will be killed by those who are opposed to them, when this great tribulation period occurs, that's when we will be protected. Now, Rodman Williams makes a particularly interesting comment. Um, his whole chapter on this area runs for probably 30 or 40 pages. And um, he does make an interesting, an interesting comment. He says this, there can be little question but that God's judgments are upon the earth, whether or not they are recognized as such. There can be little question, but that God's judgments are upon the earth, whether or not they are recognized as such. And I take it from his comment that he understands that we're in the period of tribulation already. Personally, I find it a little tiny bit confusing because right now, Christians are being killed. They're being killed in natural disasters. They're being killed in wars. They're being killed through persecution, and, and, and uh, they're certainly being persecuted now in places like China and uh, North Korea. But nevertheless, this is the position he takes, that in his view, as we observe what's going on in the world around us, it can only be interpreted as at least the beginning of the judgments of God upon the earth. Well, I want to move on now and talk a little bit about extraordinary phenomena. And uh, if you have a look at the, the series of the uh, seven judgments, the, the seals, uh, the trumpets, and the bowls, uh, you'll see at the end of those periods, there are extraordinary. I didn't get that. Would you try again? Sorry, that's Siri. Siri's just quoted me, doesn't understand the Bible, but that's all right. Um, we, we, we see as we get towards the end of those series of judgments that things actually begin to happen in the heavenly realm, but right outside any control of human beings at all. And there are quite a few um, scriptures that point to this. Uh, Matthew 24, verses 29 to 30 of, of all... Um, I've alluded to Matthew 24 already, but verses 29 to 30 read like this. Immediately, and this again, remember, is Jesus talking to his disciples. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I'll come back to verse 30 shortly. So it's recorded there in Matthew 20, 24, when Jesus explains what will happen to his disciples. There's a similar statement made by Jesus recorded in Luke 21, verses 25 to 26. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 6, verses 12 to 14 refers to it. And then if you go back to some of the Old Testament prophets, 
there seem to be direct references in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 to 11, and Joel 3, verses 14 to 15. This is what it says in Joel chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, again from the New Living Translation. Thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. There the day of the Lord will soon arrive. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will no longer shine. So reference there to what many uh, biblical scholars and theologians call extraordinary phenomena. They're way, way, way outside the control of human beings. They're things that happen in the heavens. And according to Rodman, Rodman Williams and many, many other commentators, this is the final sign that Jesus is about to come a second time. And uh, Matthew 24, 30, as I've already um, read this out, Jesus comes and so does the end of human history because with his coming, we have that millennial rule, a thousand-year rule of Jesus, and after that, the final judgment. Matthew 24, 30, just reading it again. And then at last, the sign of the Son of Man is coming. Uh, sorry, the sign that the man is coming will appear in the heavens. And there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That should be a great encouragement to the saints on earth who observe the outpouring of the wrath of God on the unrighteous. The whole world will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then finally, the people who have rejected God, who are living on the earth, they will realize the error of their ways and there will be deep mourning. There will be deep mourning. That doesn't mean they will all actually accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As unbelievable as that sounds, they will not necessarily accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. So that's the approach that uh, Rodman Williams in particular, but many, many other authors as well, have towards the idea of a post-tribulation rapture. As I've mentioned a number of times before, the official position of Australian Christian churches and assemblies of God around the world is uh, a pre-millennial position. That is, Jesus will come back with the saints at the beginning of that thousand year reign but also they hold we we when i say we as, as a pastor we hold to the doctrine of imminence which actually implies some would say requires pre-tribulation rapture my own position is uh, that of pre-tribulation rapture but as i've pointed out before we need to hold our position with a high degree of humility uh, because we can't be 100% certain that we are correct. It's um, very difficult to interpret the whole of the book of Revelation, the whole of Daniel, and the Old Testament prophets 
as well as it can be difficult to interpret the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and in other places. Now, I want to spend the next little while talking about how we might react. And yes, look, I could talk about things like mid-tribulation rapture, the idea that the saints will be uh, raptured out of the world at the time of the abomination of desolation. Uh, there's also another approach that says there's only a partial rapture, and in a sense, the most righteous of the righteous are going to be taken out. And um, I don't think you can find much biblical support for that at all. The pre-tribulation rapture, perhaps um, because of the increasing intensity of God's wrath after the desolation, the abomination of desolation. But the, the primary positions are a pre-tribulation rapture and a post-tribulation rapture. And some people hold to a rapture that will occur at the end of the millennial rule. And, and some of the mainline denominations hold to that position. But I want to make a point which I think is really, really important. And I've titled this slide here, How Now Shall We Live?, which I've stolen from Chuck Colson, who wrote a book of that title. What I want to put to you is that regardless of our view about rapture, regardless of our view actually about anything involved in the end times, three things don't change. The first is the great invitation. Jesus simply says, come, follow me. That never changes. No matter what your view about tribulation, about the millennial rule, about any aspect of the end times, Jesus' invitation always holds. It's not dependent on our perspective. The great commandment to love God with all our being and to love others as we love ourselves never changes. Never changes. Everything we do is to be motivated, to be energized by our love for God and our love for other people as well as love for ourselves. And the third thing that doesn't change regardless of our view is the Great Commission. While ever we're here on earth, God says, go into all the world, making disciples of the nations, teaching the truth of the gospel. And as you know, Ignite Life Church holds very strongly to what we call the three greats. You know, we, we, we kind of build ourselves on, on these foundations, the great invitation, the great commandment, and the great commission. None of this ever changes dependent upon our view of the end times. And I've also added in there also the cultural mandate. Let me try that again. I'm getting too excited. The cultural mandate remains the same. What is the cultural mandate? That's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, primarily and partly also in Genesis chapter 3. You see, we still have dominion. God still holds us accountable for the way in which we conduct ourselves in relation to all of his creation on earth. And you see, there's nothing in that cultural mandate which is expressed in Genesis 1 and 2 primarily, there's nothing there that says the way that you behave should 
be dictated by what you believe about the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. So we are still to steward everything that God created and to do so with the utmost of care and consideration and relationship with God. The three greats remain, as do our dominion, the authority that God gave us, and our accountability to him for how we outwork our dominion. This leads me to make some comments about what I call the pre-tribulation and post-tribulation deceptions. Can we go on to the next screen tomorrow? We are, yep, we, we're great. We haven't frozen. Uh, Tamara froze this time. <laughs> I might be scaring her because I'm getting a bit too excited and she's not too far away from me here. But look, look I think a couple of things we need to be really, really careful of. And, and some of this, uh, I was led to make these comments in part by some responses to some of my Facebook posts in, in recent times. But you see, you know what? We can get to the point where we think, you know, the world is actually going to hell in a handbasket. And, and there's so much evidence of it. I mean, even in our, in our own city with some of these protests of late, the, the, and what's behind them actually is a whole Marxist theory. We don't need to get into that in great detail. But it's absolutely contrary to the word of God. And, and, and we see such wickedness all over the world. And uh, perhaps it's even more accentuated in some other countries. And, 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 and you know, we, we can look at the world and say, you know what? We don't want to be part of that. We'll come to church. We'll raise our hands. We'll praise the Lord. We'll expect to see miracles and wonders in the four walls of our churches. And we will neglect the world. You know, it's a bit like that bunker mentality that so many people had during the Cold War, where, where they'd literally build a concrete bunker and, and stock it up with you know, canned food that would last for 20 years. And, and as soon as they saw the first sign of a nuclear conflagration, they were going to disappear into this bunker. There were documentaries, TV documentaries were made about it. See, that's, that's one of the dangers of having a strongly held belief in a pre-tribulation rapture. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to enjoy church. And then when things get really bad, God's just going to rapture me out. And then he's going to unleash his wrath on those who remain on earth. That's what I call the do nothing, just wait for rapture approach. I want to come back and say a little bit more about that shortly. But let me uh, move on now to what I would consider to be a post-tribulation deception. And this is where people get so caught up in looking for signs. They take inordinate amount of time and energy to interpret what's going on in the world. They want to identify the Antichrist. They want to identify the man of sin. And um, let me tell you, there are plenty of candidates for both. They, they get totally caught up in what's happening in terms of technology because they're worried about the mark of the beast. And, and could I just remind you 
that, that my own understanding is that the mark of the beast is the analog of the seal on the people of God. The seal on the people of God is not something which is related to technology. It's that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The mark of the beast essentially identifies those people who do not have the seal of God. I don't believe it is actually going to be a chip inserted under our skin or anything like that. It doesn't make a lot of sense to believe that there's a physical mark of the beast, but a spiritual seal of God. And so I personally don't waste time worrying about where technology might be taking us. And yes, look, um, there have been proposals, for example, to, to inject the little pellets that they can inject with, with a vaccine, for example. And um, if we got, let's say we got to a point where we said, well, okay, if you haven't been vaccinated against COVID-19, you can't be in a public place. There's a little pellet that they can inject with the vaccine, at least the technology is being developed now, and they would actually be able to scan you as you go through and they would know when you had your vaccine. All of those things are feasible, but actually I don't think the mark of the beast nor the seal of God is dependent upon the state of human technology because we're talking about something to do with the heart of humankind. So by all means, I'm not opposed to us reading widely about things like the sign of the end times. And um, it's important, I think, that we do read. It's also important that we study the Word of God. Remember, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's a promise there that if you read it, you will be blessed. If you teach from it, you will be blessed. So we can expect blessing. So we just need to be very, very careful that our understanding of end times, and in particular, our understanding of the timing of the rapture of the saints, doesn't dictate to us how we behave. The great invitation, the great commandment and the great commission apply to us anyway. Now, in fact, for me personally, a belief in pre-tribulation, which is pre-millennial rapture, actually motivates me to be more energetic in the great commission. Because you know what? I don't know anybody whom I want to be uh, to go through that final judgment and end up in the lake of fire there's no one in my family there's no one in my work world there's no one in my social world and of course we know that God does not desire that anyone should perish but that all should have eternal life so you know we should all be putting our time our energy our financial resources into spreading the gospel all over this planet and doing everything we possibly can to bring people into the kingdom. And in a sense, it doesn't matter when the rapture might occur. We're motivated right up until that time to populate earth with people who belong to the kingdom of God. So let me encourage you that it is important, I think, for us to come to a position. You know, I, I think we do need to answer the very relevant and reasonable question about the rapture, about the millennial rule, in fact, about the end times in general. 
but it should not cause us either to build a ghetto and sit safely inside that while we just wait for the rapture. And it shouldn't cause us to waste a lot of time and energy observing the world around us and trying to interpret for signs of the second coming of Jesus. Finally, I want to leave with you a word of encouragement. This is something to remember. I'm reading Revelation verses 1 to 2 from the voice translation. And you'll see that I have some words there which are in bold. And this is something we, I believe we need to remember about the end times. The whole point of the book of Revelation is this. This is the revelation of Jesus, the anointed, the liberating king, the anointed one, the chosen ruler. The overarching idea behind the book of Revelation is that Jesus is looking after the saints and that there will come a time when we rule and we reign with him eternally. We might go through some persecution. We might go through some tribulation, either simply because we're living in this world or because the rapture doesn't come until sometime during or after the tribulation. But it should always be a comfort and a strength and encouragement to us that this is the revelation of Jesus, the anointed, the liberating king, the anointed one, the chosen ruler. Revelation is an account of the visions and a heavenly journey. God granted this to him, that is to Jesus, so he would show his followers the realities that are already breaking into the world and soon will be fulfilled. Through his heavenly messenger, he revealed to his servant John signs and insights into these mysteries. John, in turn, gave witness to the word of God and to the glorious truth revealed about Jesus, the anointed one, the chosen ruler, by carefully describing everything he saw. Back in the days when I was a, a radio announcer, I used to, to play a song. It was a Southern Gospel song, and the, the title of it was, I've read the back of the book, and we win. I've read the back of the book, and we win. God bless you.